Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer, who six months ago walked away. When I arrived, he treats me like a commodity. Give me a speck on his inner connect, he wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're gonna lose. He's got a singing that old, don't know value. Welcome, everybody, to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we ask the most important question in business, do you know where your value is? Today, I am really lucky to have Jerry Gowan back, who's been on a couple episodes so far. Uh, Jerry and I wanted to talk about value in value engineering. Value engineering is normally a code word for cost reduction engineering or price reduction engineering. Uh, Jerry, welcome. Hi, Mark, glad to be back. And uh, you've been victim of that term, value engineering, and so have I, of course. But you had a, a, a story that you talked about that I wanted to share, I thought it was a great one to share with our listeners about making sure that you share cost reductions with your customer. Um, but knowing how much and how you how much you have to and and digging through and finding the underlying interests when you're when you're trying to do that. So and this story had to do with a ribbon cable in that went into uh, paper mills, which is a crazy harsh chemical and temperature environment. So Jerry, why don't you uh, take it away? Okay, so. My former employer uh, unsuccessfully tried to uh, gather or win this business uh, for over 17 years. And um, boy, we could really get into the weeds on that one. But essentially what it came down to was uh, nobody knew who the economic buyer was. So um, it was a constant struggle back and forth, back and forth. They were always coming to us for quotes because they had these compelling reasons, which we've discussed earlier, like huge uh, penalties associated with downtime on these gantries. And um, so, you know, I guess they kept thinking that if they kept coming back to us, we'd low incrementally lower our price. Yeah. So... I'm going to go back up and fill people in on some of these things, right? So this customer for 17 years was coming back at you um, and your predecessor on the account because you didn't have that account the all 17 years and and asking to bid this a piece of business, bid a piece of business, bid a piece of business. And this was in uh, paper mills, which, as I said, is a really harsh environment. and. Something that you had that we had mentioned in a prior podcast, I want to repeat it, is that paper mills are run on the slimmest of product margins, and paper shoots out of a paper mill in tens of miles an hour. And so, one hour of downtime in a paper mill is a huge volume, huge tonnage of paper. Restarting a paper mill is a nightmare. And so downtime is super, super costly for one of these paper mills. But the buyers of the of these cables were just trying to bid the price of the cable, 
over and over and over again at somebody's request, but you are just getting the bids and and people asking for price and never making any headway. Now so, I'll let you now I'll let you finish the story. <laughs> Cuz it's it's your story and it's a great one. And so you know, I inherited this piece of business um and you know, going through the piles, you know, I just find one bid after another bid and then I get a call from a buyer one day that wants another bid. And I said, nah, you know what? I'm going to no bid. Uh, it costs us a lot of money to read through your RQs and and uh, pull teams together and, and put a proposal together for you. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking here. You've got a 17 history, 17 year history of never buying anything from us. So why don't we both stop wasting a lot of time and effort here? And, uh, you know, I'll just go my separate way. And the buyer was pretty shocked that I would just no bid their business, right? So um, I said, you know, the only way I'll ever come back uh, and consider this business again is if, you know, we develop a specification for the product um, and develop some test plans for a start article and then acceptance tests, et cetera. And, you know, you set the benchmark of where the product needs to be. And then at that point in time, um, you know, I'll come back and, and uh, address your RFQ. Okay. So, so that was a piece of brilliance, right? Because for 17 years, they've been quoting you cables and quoting you business and nothing had come of it. And that approach saying I can't bid it unless we develop a test plan and first articles and a specification did two things it one it called his bluff saying I'm willing to bid this business but not on the basis that we've done it before and I need to talk to the other people involved in this to find out why you're incessantly bidding um, and what's not happening so it was it was a forms based way that this purchasing person could understand, but it was the way to get beyond the purchasing agent to the people who knew what was really going on, knew what was driving this dissatisfaction with prior vendors. Right. And, you know, they kept coming back asking us to quote on the same part number year after year after year. So um the buyer actually put me in touch with one of their R&D engineers and we sat down and created a specification. I mean, all I had in the file was essentially a, a, one, a single page, a one sheet drawing, and it was a core drawing at that, that I was bidding to. There was no reference to requirements, performance parameters or anything. So uh, I sat down with the engineer and, and we worked out a specification for the cable. And then uh, we also um, uh, worked out uh, a first article test plan. And so that engineer then went away and he built a miniature uh, trough that mimicked the cable trough in the, in the gantry. And he put heaters in it so it was running at 100 degrees Celsius, um, 
but he did not add acid gas because it would have been, you know, too difficult a task to do in a laboratory. But all well and good, uh, just running a test at 100 degrees Celsius um, would be a big eye opener. So uh, he went out and actually procured something on the order of a dozen or so competitive, uh, I think the term in the day was rainbow cables, if you will, um, which is a ribbon cable that each individual wire is color coded a, a different color. Um, and so he went out and, and he bought all these competitive samples and it was a rolling flex application. Um, and so um, as he began to test all these various and sundry cables, he came to realize that they failed after about 50,000 cycles on average. Um, and so um, he just pulled a number out of his hat. It was like, okay, so uh, based on our calculation for when we do do our scheduled maintenance, uh, I would like to see something on the order of a log uh, normal distribution uh, to first failure, not median failure on this cable, and I want it to go 1 million cycles. So um, it, we just blew the competition away. And uh, it wasn't with the cable design that we had been bidding on for 17 years either. Now we build a cable based on a set of specifications and performance parameters. So, um, you know, uh, so I'm that customer, they were in shock to see the order of magnitude improvement our product had. Yeah, so suddenly that gives you an idea of why they're calling you every year for the last 17 years, wanting somebody to bid something. Right, because nobody, internal, okay, to Gore, nobody could tell me um, what they were using uh, and how well it performed. Um, and that's because nobody ever did the specking and testing before, okay? So, and I guess the proof is always in the pudding. Yep. Once that information went up to the buyer, now the buyer wants to go crack some nuts, right? Let's see what we've got here. And so I was introduced on a conference call with a fellow down in Houston, Texas. And he was the commodity manager for the Americas. And so he's looking at all this data and everything. He says, wow, this is some pretty incredible stuff. So let me go back and, and talk to my people and then I'll get back to you. So it became apparent that there were over 30 commodity managers around the world they built these systems and various ones at that in, in various places scattered around the earth. So uh, they had to get a consensus among them. Um, and I actually ended up on a conference call with all 30 of them one day. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we started talking through all these things. They tried to beat me down on price. It's just not going to happen, guys. I take one shot, my best shot at, at delivering the best possible product I can at the best possible price and you've got it and they were paying about two dollars and 20 cents a foot for this cheap cable that didn't work 
and I'm laying there on the table of $9 and 10 cents because I already figured out my value. I can compute backwards number of failures between 50,000 and, and a million cycles. It's like, they're going to print money off my back. And, you know, I want to capture that value. So that's what we did. And so they immediately gave me an order for, oh, I forget, it was 250, maybe 300 um thousand dollars just to go out and scatter this cable around all their different facilities let everybody practice and play etc and then they immediately came back and just started started buying tons of the product which was great at that point in time i found out that the global commodities manager for things like connectors and and wire and cable and things like that was was actually in the UK. That's where the economic buyer was. And in 17 years, nobody ever talked to the guy. For that matter, in 17 years, nobody talked to the uh, com commodities manager manager for the Americas. Yeah. So let's let's make sure that we stop there, right? You you just said both the commodities manager and the economic buyer, and they were different people. Yes. Um, so many salespeople think that somebody in purchasing can be an economic buyer and it happens so seldom. So I, I just I'm just stopping you to make sure that we make that distinction for people because the person who owns the budget is not a purchasing manager, even for a commodity like cable. Oh, no. And, you know, when I found I got into this pricing discussion with them once a year, they go out and do their quantity review and and then they you know figure out what all their builds and spends are going to be and so i ended up on a conference call with this global commodities manager in the uk and he's going on this elaborate pitch that he had uh, you know he put a lot of work into it he, all kinds of graphics and everything and and uh, you know he said you know there's a lot of copper in the marketplace right now, prices are lower than they've been in years, he said. And, you know, um, and, and he was talking about ingots and literally railroad cars full of copper. OK. And, um, you know, I listened to his whole story and then it, it was like, you know, well, you, you know, your your points are all understood. They're well made, but um your logic is way out of sync with reality. So he said, well, explain that to me. I said, well, we don't buy railroad cars of raw ingot and then draw wires and then twist them or do whatever we need to do to make a multi-strand conductor to package in any kind of cable format. And the type of material we're using for your cable design is what's known as PDA-135. The PD stood for Phelps Dodge, a smelter in Arizona, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. And uh, the A-135 was alloy-135. It was copper alloy, maybe 68% copper, and then some other stuff added in there to give it very, very, very uh, high tensile strength and long flex life. And I said... Um, and I buy that as a finished product. I don't buy railroad cars full of copper. 
We don't use ETP, electrolytic tough pitch copper. We don't use OFHC, oxygen-free high conductivity copper. No, we use PDA-135. There's only one place in the world you can buy PDA-135, and that's from Phelps Dodge in Arizona. Well, it just so happens that not long after you, know, you turned us on and gave us orders, the Phelps Dodge factory that produced PDA-135 caught fire. Roughly a third of the building was totaled, um, which drastically slashed their production capabilities. And uh, I guess we were fortunate enough to have enough orders in the pipeline and a position with them because we did a lot of business with Phelps Dodge, just by the nature of our specialty cabling stuff we we, we did. So um, I said, you know, I've got this precious store of PDA-135 right here. And until Phelps Dodge can get back up on their feet again, you know, I'm going to have to milk this, you know. So then all of a sudden, <clears throat> this global commodity manager realized that uh, Am held over the barrel as much as he was because Phelps Dodge controlled my price. Therefore, I control Honeywell's price. So he was still adamant that he wanted to get a 2% price reduction from us. So I said, well, I don't know. Well, let me go back and talk to my people and see what we can come up with. So I went back to the factory and I was uh, in another location in the factory uh, working with uh, uh, my guys on another product. And I noticed that they were videotaping things and they were doing other weird stuff too. Like instead of loading up carts full of all these spools to be cabled or whatever um, that um, they were videotaping the whole process from the original work order that hit the shop floor all the way through final inspection and shipment they were learning tricks like to move equipment uh, to an extruder rather than like a braiding stand in one part of the factory. And then you'd have to wheel that cart once it was all braided over to where the extruder was and et cetera, et cetera. So they learned how to uh, put machines like braiders and, and binder tape wrappers and stuff like that in line. So they were doing three different process steps in one pass. So they were eliminating all the non-value added stuff they were doing with pushing all these carts all over this factory. So um, I said, you know, that's that's really interesting. And so then I went down to um, the production area where we were making these planar cables, these ribbon cables, if you will. Um, and, you know, I watched the, the whole process. So in like, say, a 20 conductor uh, rainbow cable, if you will, you had 10 basic colors that you repeated across the cable. And so that meant there was 10 primary wire setups. And as we all know, uh, the yields from for any given color coming off of any given tape wrap machine um, would be different than the next one and the next one and the next one. So when they would go and spool up, we had something with, so known as a wire tree 
It's a tree where you hang all your discrete wires on it, and then it goes through a combing mechanism and then into some tooling, etc. And so they would have to match the lengths of these different colors. So one primary wire, say the white one came out at a 2,000 feet and the black one came out at 1,400 feet. Well, and all the other eight were somewhere in between those two points. They would go to the shortest length and cut off <laughs> all the extra length. That became scrap, right? But so now they had a unity of length across these uh, 20 conductors, if you will. And uh, then they would cable that up. And I'm there like, man, that is a terrific waste. Why don't we just go back to the customer and say, hey, you know, um, you bought this rainbow cable from us in the past because it was a catalog part number. Um, Do you really need all these color codes? I mean, if, if you're looking for a price concession from us, if I can build one primary wire instead of 10, well, I would have a significant cost savings, actually a tremendous cost savings, reducing nine of 10 setups. So um, they came back to me and said, no, 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 no. You see, uh, we slit the ends of the cable out to turn them into discrete wires. We fan them out and then we terminate them and then we pot them, et cetera, et cetera. And we need the color coding to be able to tell which conductor from one end <laughs> went to which uh, lug, if you will, on the other end. So no, we have to have the color. So go back to the factory and say, well, you know, it may have been a brilliant idea, but uh, they poo-pooed on that one. But I got a dumb question for you. Since this cable we're making had a solid color on one side and this rainbow color of conductors across the other side, why why can't we just make one primary wire? So I'm standing there at the cabler, uh, I guess we call it the multi-tet process line, and um, I'm looking at this wire tree that's all set up to you know run through the tooling, and I'm there like, well, you see all these spools of wire you have on this, this tree here? Why, why can't we have spools of like real thin colored tapes up there? And you know, we can make a bobbin with like 20,000 feet of tape on it, right? And so my, my suggestion that I threw out was, why don't we try and like slit out narrow widths of different colored tapes, hang them on the table tree, and then make one primary wire, but run these skinny little tapes over the top of the wire, facing the clear side up, if you will. So fiddled around with that. It, it, it took a whole two days to figure it out, Mark. Now, now we're talking about, you know, here's a paradigm shift. We've been building these types of products the same way for decades. Since rocks got hard. Yeah, functional fixity, you know, just couldn't see any other way to do it than the way we always did it, you know. But so they, they figured out how to do it. Uh, it was a little tricky in getting those skinny little tapes to run to just cover the <laughs> exposed side of the primary wires, if you will. But my goodness, the cost savings 
that we created by doing that simple little um, uh, change in process got our yields way up, our scrap way down, our our manufactured costs. I don't know. You tell me. You go from ten color coded primaries to a single one. What do you think the cost benefit was? Raw on raw costs. You know. But yeah. Percent fifty. It would have been. It would have been. It would have been pretty uh, substantial. So it, it, like you say, you know, it was it was a huge bogey, and so um, sat down with the product uh, manager and said, "Okay, let's throw these guys a bone. How about he was asking for two percent? How about we give them two point four percent?" Yeah, and and Jerry, I'll bet, yeah, as a former product manager, I'll bet the cost, the material cost probably went down 10 or 15 percent now material cost uh, you still had the labor cost uh slightly reduced labor cost even with the additional labor of fiddling with the tapes you had a lot less labor in setting up those primary tapes so you probably had a small decrease in labor cost and a huge decrease in material cost no change in overheads so right. i'll bet you you could have had a five to eight percent total cost reduction Oh, yeah. And keep in mind, too, that uh, I think the scrap on that line was running somewhere around 11 or 12 percent. Yeah, I'm sure. 11 to 12 percent of the finished primary wires got thrown out. <laughs> so there was that added benefit there, too. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, I go back to them and I say, look, we figured out a, a new way to make the same product we're not changing anything that's substantial to design or performance um, i'm willing to give you a spool of cable go throw it on your tester if uh, you, you want to qualify this slight process manipulation we've come up with and they said no i mean you're, you're going to put your hand on the bible and swear it's the same stuff I'm not, yep absolutely guaranteed and so we said, and uh, because we, we figured out how to make some of these changes, we are willing to give you, you know, a discount of 2.2%, uh, I think is what we actually ended up giving them. And the guy was absolutely thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm sitting back there saying, cha-ching. Well, I, I just bumped my contribution margin up five, six, I don't know, 7%. Um, by making the changes and, and, and giving into the price reduction, well, we actually improved our margins. So it, it was a win-win for us. Yeah. yeah. So I stopped you a couple times through there because you found out, you took the time to find out that most important question, where do you know where your value is? And the value was in a product that could handle the flex life, a insulation system that could handle that temperature and not degrade the copper. And then you found out that there was some value in the color coding, but not necessarily the color coding the way you had been applying it. And so it was to an aid in a termination, which is pretty important. Uh, so you, you took the time to understand the customer's process and the customer's outcome and delivered them a, a better solution because you took the time and you asked the right question and you hunted for the right people. And 
you know, you're you're saying you're describing all this as kind of a normal part of your approach, but I can promise you, Jerry, that's not what a lot of sales professionals do. And that's not what a lot of businesses do for their customer. Well, you know, and Gord may be unique in the, in the fact that uh, salespeople are like the program manager. They, they own their projects from cradle to coffin. Sure, there's plenty of other folks in the loop, but uh, nonetheless, you know, you had to manage this. Uh, and oftentimes, how many times have you heard it or said it, <laughs> that it's harder to get an internal win than it is to get an external one. So, you know, in that respect, you had to do your homework. I, I, I work with a lot of bright men and women, and uh, it was a ball to get these little teams together and, and go fiddle with stuff and figure things out, et cetera. So, um, you know, it, it was kind of in Gore's culture, if you will, uh, that you were ingrained to do all those kinds of things. And as I explained earlier, you know, it, at that point in time when I went to work for Gore back in 1979, I guess it was, that it was a thrilling experience. I actually trained in the factory for two years before they let me on the street. And yeah. I ran, I did everything from sweeping floors to running every single piece of equipment we had out there in the factory. So that gave me some insight about, you know, process and how do we do this and how do we do that? Uh, today, you know, Gore's salespeople are highly discouraged from even traveling to a plant unless they had a customer with them. Back in the day, we traveled to the plant because we're bringing an idea with us, you know. Yeah, you know, I harp over and over about two big things. One, understand your customer's business. And two, get everybody to be able to touch your customer and have a business conversation about outcomes because every you never know where ideas can come from but those best ideas only happen when you really understand your customer's business and you can affect a customer business outcome and you know that's you facilitated both of those to happen and pretty remarkable stuff Jerry, um, we are at time. What a great conversation. What a great story. Thank you. Oh, quite welcome, Mark. I've got a million of them. <laughs> I, I know. And um, I, was lucky I was lucky enough to be there for a few of them. So thanks, everybody, for joining us on the Value Clarity Podcast, where we believe that value only exists in your customer's mind and getting it out of their customer's mind and onto your Commission check means that your success really sits in your customer's head. Thanks. And have a great high value day. Well, it ain't easy because value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're going to drive over you insane. And if you ignore your customer's outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues because you'll be singing those old don't know value blues. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.